Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It's a great pleasure to bring you a much-needed subject of great import to all of the people who have orthopedic issues that are causing pain, a lack of mobility, and are impacting life negatively. Today, we're bringing you one of the rare gems in the regenerative medicine field who has a dedication to continuous learning, to patient care, and healing. Dr. Craig Chase has a thoroughness in receiving and integrating new knowledge that makes his unusual place in the field very much needed. In 2018, I tore my right meniscus in a freak accident with my dog, Danny. I researched what I could do to regenerate it instead of having it surgically removed. I called different doctors with different approaches, and I heard very different things. My life changed so dramatically that I became very invested in doing all I could to regain my ability to exercise, to take long walks, and to do things I really wanted to do by becoming very informed about what appears to be a field that has very different views and information that are being transmitted to patients, which can seem very confusing and elusive. Doctors are human beings with their own issues, vulnerabilities, and competitiveness that require that we, the patients, get to the bottom of some of the myths, the mysteries, and the controversies in the field. Some people say and assert that stem cell procedures and PRP therapies don't work. Well, not all stem cell therapies are the same. And you will find out today that not all platelet-rich plasma therapies are the same either because it depends on a handful of elements that are usually not discussed with patients. Dr. Chase and his wife, Rosie, are the founders of the Center for Regenerative Medicine, along with being a chiropractor and a physician's assistant, coupled with his vascular specialty, Dr. Chase has a powerful synthesis of training, expertise, knowledge, and experience that makes his approach and their practice the go-to practice to facilitate the healing of not only my right knee, but of many of your orthopedic issues. Let's open the black box of discovery, new knowledge, and the opportunity that regenerative medicine really is. Let's embrace the controversy surrounding it as well. Let's start with the controversy. Welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. Here we go. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so there's quite a controversy as far as stem cell and where we collect it. Research is divided, and so that's why you have some who do one or some do the other, and then others who uh, mix the two. I tend to fall on the bone marrow side. I've done both. Uh, bone marrow seems to give better results. There's things in the bone marrow that are not in the adipose-derived stem cells that work well for orthopedic conditions. It has uh, osteochondral uh, reticular cells, and that you don't have that in fat. Also, there's hematopoietic stem cells in bone marrow, a thousand times more than you have in fat. So there just seems to me to be some advantages in collecting from the bone marrow. And particularly that we're also injecting osteoarthritic knees or musculoskeletal problems. It just seems those stem cells are closer to that group of tissue. But yeah, I don't fault anybody who uses the uh, fat-derived stem cells because they do have a lot of stem cells. Some say more than bone marrow, but it depends on how you do the math. I think really uh, depending on what denominator you use because stem cells exist in a soup. So there's a lot of other nucleated cells in the fat-derived and the bone marrow-derived. So when you do just do the math on it, it turns out that there isn't a huge difference, and there may actually be more stem cells in the uh, bone marrow. 
So there's a process of collecting it. The thing that we try to do with stem cells is to be very careful with them because they have to be viable. They have to be living and not injured so that when you inject it into the structure that they can do their action. And the reason why stem cell is so popular is because stem cells either can change into other cells. So if you have a tissue problem or a ligament problem, the body can use those stem cells to make ligament tissue. So it's beneficial to use uh, those stem cells because you're healing with the exact tissue that's damaged. Typical healing, you heal with uh, collagen or scar, and so that doesn't act like the tissue. But when you heal ligament tissue with ligament tissue, it's the same tissue, and so it acts the way that it should. Can you talk about, just before you continue, the distinction between, you said, living a stem and non-living, or how would you know, and how, how is the training out there to know the difference? Well, yeah, it's through the, the science and, the, and the, uh, the research that is done. So there's different types of stem cells. There's the stem cells that we just talked about that you can get from fat. There's the stem cells you can get from the bone marrow. There's also autologous stem cells that are sold and doctors can buy and then inject that into the patient without having to collect the stem cells from the patient. The research doesn't seem to support that well, that those stem cells, even though they were in the product when they collected it from the umbilical cord or from wherever they got it, that through the processing, freezing, drying, whatever processing, let's say freezing, that those stem cells don't survive. So if any do, in any small number, they're usually not strong enough to do the intended purpose of repairing the tissue. So basically, something that I was told was that somebody had said to me, we'll take your stem cells and we'll send it to a lab and we'll freeze it and hold it for you so you don't have to go through this procedure every time if you're going to do it again and again. Right. So the devil's always in the details, right? Well, you know, and that's not a bad process. So they typically they collect those cells from the fat and then they are shipped to a tissue bank and then they are frozen. And then when the patient needs it, then they're uh, unfrozen. But at, at some point they expand them or they culture those stem cells to make more and more and more stem cells. It's just that the FDA hasn't approved that for, for use in the United States. So if you had a company that would collect the stem cells for you, through the fat and send it to uh, one of the labs that can do the culturing, you'd pretty much have to go out of the country to find someone who could legally inject it for you. What about if they collected stem cells through uh, the bone marrow? Yeah, so bone marrow has an advantage over the fat in that uh, you can use it the, the same day. Not that you can't use fat the same day. There's just different techniques that favor bone marrow use so that it, and it's more convenient for the patient typically to have it all done at one point. But sure, they could send that out to, as well. Why is it that in the industry, people, many doctors are mixing both stem from body fat and stem from bone marrow? Yeah, I think it's because the science is still young as to which one is better in which circumstances. And so they're hedging their bet by using both, trying to get the advantages of bone marrow as well as fat-derived stem cells. I want you to explain why it is you think that many practitioners are withdrawing both stem cell from the bone marrow and from the body fat and mixing it together and then injecting it. I think that uh, you know they may have reasons of their own uh, that have supported that. I think it is a beneficial process because if there is some benefit over fat-derived stem cells that perhaps the bone marrow doesn't have or vice versa. And we know for sure that the bone marrow does have elements that the fat doesn't have or doesn't have in the same quantity that bone marrow does. So I think mixing it is kind of hedging your bet and you're trying to get the best of both worlds. Because there are even some practitioners that will do only from the body fat or mixed. Stem from body fat and stem from the bone marrow versus just, I've never heard of just from the bone marrow, so this is new. Oh. New sounding, I would say. I think uh, by far, really, the majority of people who 
uh, have training in, in this do use bone marrow as opposed to fat. So sometimes it's a, a reason that the doctor may not have studied how to collect it from fat and how to go through the different processes to isolate the stem cells from the fat because there is an additive that you have to put into uh, the fat-derived stem cells to be able to release the stem cells from the fat cells themselves. Can you disclose what that is, the additive? Is it a general thing, or do people do different things? The different things. Typically, it's a collagenase, which is an enzyme that breaks it down, breaks down the collagen and, and releases the stem cells. And where does that come from? It's from a lab. You buy it. Okay. Does it change the nature of the stem cells, or is it just... No. No. It's safe. And it's safe for people. How did you get into it? I studied first as a chiropractor, and so I did that for many years. And then when I went to uh, the osteopathic physician's assistant program, then I realized that as, as a physician assistant, I could do more medically than a chiropractor is. You know, it's just not part of their license. And so when I heard about those things, because chiropractic is, you know, we really like the natural things as much as we can. And so if we can heal osteoarthritic knees or tendon problems or ligamentous problems naturally without using drugs or surgery, that's kind of our philosophy. How long does it last? I don't think I've heard anybody talk about how long stem cell procedures last. Doesn't it also depend on your age? Yeah, so there's a lot of variables there, and it really comes down to being patient-dependent because everybody lives their life a little different. They eat differently. Their genetics uh, play a role in it. Generally, what I've done with stem cells and PRP is to do the process and then recheck the patient over segments of time, and then after about a year is to look very closely and see if they need a booster of PRP. Usually... PRP or, or stem cell? So usually PRP, and I'll explain that. Okay. So the, the stem cell, and you can do multiple stem cells. People don't even know what the PRP is. So let's say you do stem cell with okay. me. You're going to do a revisit in a year. You'll probably see me before, but you'll, ch- you'll do a check for sure in a year. Right. So stem cells, once they're injected, those stem cells will convert into lineage of stem cells, which will make more stem cells and more stem cells and more stem cells. So the the process continues, just depending on how well the patient does, because it's the patient's stem cells and putting putting back into the patient's body. So the stem cells are enormously powerful. But if there's some reason genetically, biologically, that that patient doesn't continue the line or needs more, it's just that's happened so rare to me that it's not a common occurrence. And some practitioners, even what you talked about, are using PRP six weeks later, 12 weeks later, after a stem cell procedure. Why? And what what do you, what are they doing? Because not all PRP is the same, which is platelet-rich plasma. The reason they're doing this, they're, they're trying to support the stem cells. So PRP has growth factors or healing factors that the stem cells um, can uh, benefit from. And uh, the PRP recruits those stem cells uh, to heal the tissue. So it is supportive, and that's a, uh, a technique that I use as well. I remember one of the PRP sessions where you said to me that you use an activator. Mm-hmm. There's an activator in the platelet-rich plasma that helps it proliferate. Is that correct? Right. What is it? Well, there's different ones. Uh, calcium chloride uh, is used most commonly. Thrombin can be used as well. So the magic of the platelets are within the platelet. But we have platelets circulating through our bodies constantly, and they're not releasing their granules or the growth factors. It's when the platelets are activated that they allow the contents to be released, and those are the healing factors of which they found over 30 in platelet-rich plasma now. So let's take my scenario. Let's take a scenario because I've heard different people do incredibly well with stem cell procedures. Why is it that many people do come back in a year, a lot of people have had success, and some people have to go to another procedure? Not with you. I don't know about with you, but I've heard with other doctors, they've gone back for a second round. Okay. Why? Yeah, it could be they got incomplete healing. So they may be 30%, 60%, but they want more. 
And stem cells can take time to heal. The stem cells will make other stem cells. And that process uh, goes on and on and on. So at six months or a year, it still may be early as far as getting the complete or maximal benefit from that stem cell injection. But some people and, and some doctors, they're trying to help. They really want to get people out of pain. And so if somebody's come back and they're in complete healing, I think the thinking is, well, let's try it again and see if we can get better. And that does happen. Uh, people come in for a second injection and boom, they're 30% better, 40% better just with that second injection. Now, is it an injection for STEM? Don't you do you? One of the things I found very interesting about your work is that you don't just do an injection. You may do 15, 17, 18 injections in a site, like for my knee. Well, the first person I went to for PRP did one injection in the knee capsule. One. And um, with the way you do PRP, you do like 15, 16 injections. Yeah, and that's the training and learning uh, the science about why you would do that. When you have an osteoarthritic knee or shoulder, that process is not limited to the cartilage. It affects the tendons. It affects the ligaments. It affects the synovium, the, the liquid-producing membrane inside the joint the cartilage. So it's a complete degenerative process. So to put one single injection inside the joint, you're only doing part of the job. If I put a single injection inside the, the knee, I'm not helping the ligaments that are on the outside or the tendons. So that's why we use multiple injections because it's a global treatment where we're trying to strengthen the entire structure. So it's like, it's like what I would say, it's whole systems. It's a whole systems approach, really, to ending the degeneration or repairing and regenerating what's there in totality. Correct. Right? Diet and exercise, a lot of people say it does have something to do with the healing of the stem cells, you know, the, like how powerful it is, how long it lasts, what you get out of it. What do you think? Well, I think you can't go wrong with it. Eating a healthy diet and getting regular exercise, you're giving the body the environment of what it needs to heal. So I think there's plenty of studies to show that those things are beneficial for us in so many different ways. You know, I can't see where it wouldn't be helpful in healing a, a knee or shoulder or whatever. So for example, I tore my meniscus in my right knee. Let's say that I'm 65 or 70% healed. But the 30% that is still lingering keeps me, I'm just giving you an example of me and everybody else who's out there will have their own scenario. I go to walk every day and I take a 30 minute walk and I'm not crazily running, but at the end of my 30 minute walk after a few days, I have pain mm -hmm. on the inside of my knee. It's not terrible, but it's unpleasant. So sometimes I'll do two, three days of walking and then nothing one day, and then I start again. But the aftermath of stem cell and PRP seems to me to be very uh, kind of a vacuous. It's not clear what people are to do. This is the missing part as a, as a consumer, as a patient, all over. Nobody that I have ever met has said what to do and not do. Should you weight train? Should you do resistance training? Should you do yoga? Like, what do you do? And what do you not do to aggravate that injury, wherever it is? Right. Any thoughts on that? Well, sure. So typically, with these type of injections, I like the patient to rest for a couple of three days. And then after that, to resume light activities. But nothing heavy for even a month. And then depends on the person because, you know, if you're dealing with an, an athlete who's really pushing it, it could be longer. They, so people have to go back gradually to their activities no matter what the activity is. Because remember, when you're, when you're healing, these new cells are fragile. So if you try to do too much and push too hard, create too much tension, uh, it could slow down the process or create an inflammatory process, uh, which gives uh, the person the discomfort. Isn't platelet-rich plasma supposed to be an inflammatory process in a way? And to talk about the difference between that and stem cell as you understand oh it. Oh my gosh, yeah. So, Oh my gosh is right. <laughs> <laughs> platelet-rich plasma is a, a big term. 
because there's lots of different PRPs. So I've been doing this for 10 years, and the way we used to do it 10 years ago is not the way that it's being done currently. So back then, we would use a, a machine. So we'd draw the blood, the blood would go in the machine, and the machine would centrifuge it and uh, collect the, the PRP. And the PRP was the same PRP no matter if you were treating a ligament or a cartilage or skin problems or whatever. It was all the same PRP. Well, within that were probably too many white blood cells. So leukocytes can create inflammation, and so that's what would happen, is we would inject that into somebody's knee or shoulder or whatever, and they would get inflamed. And it wasn't from the platelets. It was more from the white blood cells. So the science has shown us that we don't really want to inject the, the white blood cells. So now we prepare the PRP differently to eliminate the white blood cells. Now, there may be a situation where somebody isn't healing well and you want to inject a little white blood cell to get more inflammation, a bigger response from the body. But those, those are going to be very select conditions for the patient. Typically, we try not to use the leukocytes. There's a whole controversy. There's so much controversy, but also excitement in this field. A lot of people talk about, well, oh, my doctor doesn't need to use a guided injection system. Uh, or they'll say, I want a guided injection system. I want the doctor to see where he or she is injecting these fluids. Where are you at about it? Talk a little bit about this guided injection machine that you use and why you use it and why you think it's important. Yeah, I do use it. Prior to learning how to use the ultrasound, I, I did what are called blind injections, or a better term might be anatomical injections. And uh, you would feel for the area anatomically, and then that's where you would inject. And, and that was fine. The problem is there, there was a little bit of guesswork. You knew you were hitting the particular tendon because you know anatomically where it is, but you couldn't really see where the lesion was. So it's possible people were getting more pokes than what they really uh, needed to solve their problem. But when I first learned about ultrasound, it was wonderful because you could see where the lesions, where the weakness, where the thickness or the thinness are. And we document that. So somebody comes in and they've got degeneration of a ligament. We can document the size and what that ligament looks like prior to the treatment. Then we can put them through the process of their treatments. And then after six months or a year, we can relook at that and see how well they did with that. I didn't know you could do that. I thought it was just like in real time. You see when you're giving the injections and delivering the stem cells or the PRP, I didn't know that you have a copy of it. Right. You mean you could see my knee when we first met? Sure. All right. Well, see, now I know more about the C, you guys. Well, it's valuable. <laughs> it's, it's valuable. Um, you know, the first part is valuable as well as far as guidance because it's much more precise. We can see when the needle enters whatever tissue. We can see how the injection is affecting the tissue. We can move the needle to hit other parts that that particular injection may have not have gotten. So it just helps in so many ways to, to make the process more accurate and to give a, a, the patient a better response. I understand that learning the machine is very, takes a while to learn it. Why? Yeah. So uh, when you first look at it, you don't know what you're seeing. It just looks like, um, uh, you know, swirled sand in the, on the beach or clouds in the sky. But those undulations actually are changes in uh, muscle or fascia, ligament, and over time, you can identify which muscles and fascias and nerves. And I mean, it's wonderful to be able to see that, know where you're at, and to be able to see the benefits of putting the medicine there and, and uh, knowing that you got to the right place. But yeah, it's a huge learning curve. How long does it take somebody to learn? Well, from your from your experience, to really not just to know a little about it, but to be able to be effective with it. Yeah. So I would say I didn't feel 
absolutely comfortable for maybe three years because there's just so many different parts of the, of the body and we treat the whole body. So it takes a long time to learn those different areas. And that's under constant research too. They're finding how to manipulate the probe so that you can see this structure or that structure better. And they say that when you look at the ultrasound screen, what you're really seeing is about the width of a credit card. So even as big as it seems uh, when you look at the screen, it's just the edge of a of a credit card. So moving, tilting, rotating, all those things help you give a more 3D picture. The other thing about ultrasound uh, that I like a lot, like uh, with the MRI, the MRI will show, show certain things. The MRI is terrific and is very helpful for us, but it's static. So if anybody who's had an MRI knows you just you lay there for the 30, 40 minutes that it takes and the MRI moves around you and gets some wonderful pictures, but it's static. With the ultrasound, we can move the ultrasound, but we can also move the patient. So if I want to see if you have a tear in a muscle or fascia, I can have you, let's say you've got an injury to your thigh. I can put the ultrasound transducer on there and then have you move your leg around, and I can see what's happening to that muscle as it contracts, extends. I can see if the fascia is doing its work, if there's an injury, has the fascia been torn? Because those things are so important when you're treating somebody that if you don't correct the fascia, which is kind of guiding the direction of the contraction, you're missing a huge part of the problem. You said something in the midst of a session with you doing PRP where you were explaining to me the delivery of the PRP when you're bringing the needle out instead of just injecting into and how much safer it is. Can you explain that? I thought that was fascinating. Well, it's a technique, and uh, we do it both ways. We'll, we'll inject on entry, but also we'll do a retrograde injection. And we'll do that, you know, particularly in an area where there's a lot of blood vessels or nerves uh, so that um, uh, we, we don't um, inject into the blood vessel or the nerve because we're, we're pulling the needle out. Yeah, I thought that was really an, an unusual thing to hear. That was one of the questions I had when I went to the first orthopedic surgeon. And I said, well, what if you hit a blood vessel? What if you hit an artery? What if you, how do you, if you can't see it? And he said, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. And if people don't know what they're doing, then they're going to do that. I know anatomy and, you know, the whole bit. Right. So, but everybody's body's different. Yeah, everybody's body's different. Right. And that is an advantage, is not only being precise with the injection, but making sure you don't hit anything. I mean, how many times have people told me and others, ah, they hit the bone when they gave me the injection. Well, with the ultrasound, we know exactly where that tip of the needle is. So we're not going to accidentally hit a nerve or vessel or bone. Talk a little bit about the anesthetic part, the delivery of the anesthetic you do it a little bit differently than anywhere else I've been. Talk a little bit about that. Well, most of the time people will use uh, bupivacaine, lidocaine, the, the canes, their anesthetics. What they've found is those things can be harmful to cartilage. So if you're putting injection in thinking you're helping the patient by numbing the area, you may actually be damaging the part that you're trying to fix. So what I'll use is buffered D5W, uh, D5W is just dextrose in water, so it's you know very uh, mild and safe, and we buffer it to take any acidity away so that it's as comfortable as possible, and we'll use a cold spray to anesthetize the skin and distract the patient. I love your cold spray, I must tell you. <laughs> I've had so many injections from this man, ladies and gentlemen, that if it weren't for the cold spray and his incredible angelic care... I don't know where I'd be, but that really makes a difference. It actually takes your mind off of what's happening, and you're distracted with the cold instead of the sting. Correct. And it's a, the timing thing, uh, because if you leave the cold spray on too long, it hurts. So it's a spray and then a gentle entry with a needle. And I've found that that is the most comfortable way to give a to give an injection. Although I have to admit, ladies and gentlemen, that I have sworn at this doctor 
in front of his wife, Rosie, <laughs> who is the one who takes the blood and manages the practice. And I said some very bad words a couple of times, and I'll never be forgotten there. <laughs> I think I called you a son of a blank, didn't I? A couple of times. Oh, I, yeah, I the cold spray must have worn off. But when you do the anesthetic part, where do you deliver it? And why do you deliver it where you deliver it? And you're not supposed to do it where you're delivering. There's something about that. You're not supposed yeah. to deliver it where you're delivering the PRP or the stem. Well, that's with the lidocanes and the canes because they may be damaging the cartilage. So in the years past, uh, before I came to the manner that I'm using now, I would uh, use the spray, inject a little lidocaine in the skin, and then in the pathway down to the joint, but I wouldn't enter the joint injecting lidocaine because even back then we knew that there was a potential risk to damage the cartilage. But now I, I don't even use that uh, technique because people do really well with the D5W and uh, the buffered D5W with sodium bicarbonate. And I got that from Dr. John Liftoff, who does a technique called PIT that I use frequently as well. And it's for neurogenic pain. And you can actually decrease neurogenic pain tremendously and immediately using this uh, solution uh, that he started using about 15 years ago. So what, where do you inject it? Is it just injected into the skin or is it? Yeah. So it's a subdermal or subcutaneous injection, but you're injecting perineurally. So you're not injecting into the nerve. You're injecting near the nerve so that the nerve will absorb the D5W. And then once it's uh, inside the nerve, then it travels from the small branches that are on the skin down to the deeper uh, areas of the nerve. Talk a little bit about the addition of nitrous oxide well, into nitrous your into your practice. That was certainly fun to go <laughs> flying with you last week. Yeah. <laughs> so we, was... we started doing that basically for patients' comfort. Some people just have a deathly fear of needles, and they get very, very nervous. And so we offer that to them so that um, it helps to decrease the anxiety, decrease the pain, and so they just have a more pleasant experience. But the interesting thing is that we didn't do that with PRP, but we did that in this last thing we're going to talk about too, which is the A2M, and I'm going to ask you to talk about that in a moment. But the nitric, nitrous oxide, what I found interesting about it is that even though you were numbing me up and that I could control how much I was taking in, that's fascinating. Talk about that. Yeah, so the dentists use this and have used it for years and years to help patients. And with their equipment, they can manipulate how much nitrous that they want to give the patient uh, and how much oxygen. So that requires constant monitoring. With ours, it's a different type of machine, and it's only a 50-50 mix. So the patient has a mouthpiece, and they can breathe it in. But as soon as they stop breathing, they stop getting... Uh, that doesn't sound right. No, no. In, in other words, <laughs> <laughs> patient is all of a sudden stopping breathing. He didn't really mean that, ladies and gentlemen. Let's take a two. Go for it. <laughs> I'm still here, everybody. Okay. And I had plenty of that stuff, by the way. That was great. Okay. I'm still on it. Okay. Right. No, go ahead. So once, once the, the patient voluntarily <laughs> stops inhaling the nitrous, then they're not getting any more. So they get to a level of, the, of their comfort uh, that they're feeling relaxed. And the thing falls out of their hand, right? Uh, well, they're you, not, hold, no. you actually hold the thing, right? Yeah, well, Describe it. it. Describe right. it to people. Oh, gosh. It's like a tube, so it's a, right? It's, a it's a tube, like a tube. And it's got a little mouthpiece to it. And you just put the mouthpiece in there, and then you breathe in through that. And usually it's not more than a few inhalations when people start to feel Right. I think relaxed. it got a little vocal at that point. So Because it relaxes you. Right. It certainly does. Right. It but you know, you know what's going on. I mean, you're completely sure. aware. So it's not like you're out of control. You're in complete control. And once you've had enough, uh, you just stop in breathing through the machine and just start breathing room air again. Is it true, somebody had said to me after I came back after the procedure with you that some people with nitrous oxide get sick to their stomach if they've eaten that morning. Is that true? Sure. I mean, the different people will react differently to almost any type of medication. So, Have you ever had possible. anybody had a reaction to uh, when you're numbing them up, any of the numbing up materials? 
Uh, you know, the, some people are apprehensive, so, you know, they're nervous. Uh, I haven't had anybody have a, like a medical uh, reaction. I haven't had anybody, you know, we always ask them, of course, are you allergic to, to any of these products? So we haven't had any bad experiences, thank goodness. Talk about A2M, and uh, do you know how to pronounce it? Because I don't. Yeah, alpha-2 macroglobulin. There you go. (laughs) So alpha-2 macroglobulin, the body uses it in a lot of different ways, and we've known about it for many, many, many years. But more recently, in the last few years, see, that that molecule is circulating in our body, and in tiny amounts, we find it in joints. But the molecule is so big, it can't get into the joint in great quantities. But what they've found is that alpha-2 macroglobulin is a protease inhibitor. So there's an enzyme that causes the breakdown of cartilage. And what they found is when they inject the A2M into the knee, that it stops the breakdown of the cartilage because the protein in A2M blocks the enzyme that's creating the injury. So it's, it's a terrific discovery. And because it's relatively new in orthopedics just in the last few years, that it... Um, the last few years or the last 10 years? A few what? years. A few yeah, years? Okay. Yeah, yeah not 10 years. Um, but when, did, when was it first found out? When was it well, first it was discovered? Found out, I've read articles you know, on alpha-2 macroglobulin dating back to the 90s, and it may be gold back even before then, but not in this usage. So this usage, I think it was around 2012, 2014. I could be wrong, but uh, that's what my memory tells me. And the technique's been around for not, not many years, I think probably five years. Can you tell the audience a little bit about how you get it from the body? We collect it the same way we would with PRP. So it's a blood draw, and we extract a certain number of milliliters, and then and that's put through a centrifuge and then another process that feathers out the A2M uh, molecule. So then we mix that with some of the plasma, and then we inject it into the joint. So you did a lot of injections with me, mm-hmm. a lot, mm-hmm. both knees, even mm-hmm. though the right knee is the one that really took the big hit in the fall. Right. Why? So we're trying to strengthen up the supportive structures, the ligaments, the tendons. You have ligaments inside the knee as well. You have the coronal ligaments, the uh, mediofemoral ligament. So you have these ligaments that are very important, the coronal ligament attaches to the meniscus inside and then to the tibia. So that ligament's very important if we're trying to treat your your meniscus so that we give it the greatest structural integrity that we can. Because, you know, it's, it's all the way around uh, the knee, so that requires multiple injections. There are many orthopedic surgeons that would say just cut the meniscus out. It's no big deal. Spend X number of weeks in the hospital. Spend two months recovering. And what? What happens? Yeah. So it's very different information transfer. Right. And it's made the realm very confusing and difficult for a consumer to know what to do. Now, in my, in my particular case, before you answer this, one doctor I went to said, you've had you know, many sessions of PRP where you've had multiple injections, 15, 16 injections in each knee, et cetera, and you've had stem cell. It's, you obviously need surgery. It's not working. And I said, well, wait, we don't know that it's not working because I'm 70% better than I was. Good. And another person said to me, a physical therapist, and this is for everybody that is gonna, could possibly have this happen, well, if you do this, you will lose an inch in your knee. By cutting the meniscus, you'll be bone on bone, and you're going to end up with a knee replacement. And that's what I was told, and that scared the heck out of me. And I, I said to them, there's no way I'm doing this. It doesn't make any sense. Let's regenerate it. I'm going to do whatever it takes to regenerate it. And so I don't think the critical mass of medical patients believe in regeneration. And that's part of what separates the paradigm and the universe of how you solve the problem when you have injuries like this. 
Well, a lot of it, I think, is uh, patients are still unaware that there's an alternative, that there are ways to repair. Certainly when you cut out the meniscus, uh, that's going to change the biomechanics of the knee, and you no longer have that part of the cushion that's there because the front and the back of the meniscus are what takes the, the biggest hit in our cushioning. And so we cut out a, a part of that. Now the other part, either front or back, has to carry the full weight, and that just wears out the meniscus a lot faster. So there there is a large percentage of people who've had meniscectomies who then end up going on to a knee replacement. And I think the surgeons would agree too, though, if there is a way to repair it, if people can be 75 80% better, that's a better alternative than surgery. And I think the patients would agree in large part with that. Why don't the insurance companies cover this if, in fact, it would save so much money in surgeries? It's a complicated question. I got plenty more where that comes from. (laughs) Okay. I don't want to be an insurance advocate, but I I kind of understand their situation, uh, that there isn't one PRP like we talked about. I mean, there's there's leukocyte rich, leukocyte poor. There's things that you can do to the platelets. You can add the activators to it. You can process it uh, through photoinduction. I mean, there's just so many manipulations. And so when the studies are done, sometimes the authors are not complete in how they made the PRP, how many revolutions, how many G-forces, and for how long, and how many different spins they used. So there isn't a standardized treatment that's better for a tendon or better for cartilage or better for a ligament where the insurance companies would say, okay, I can, we'll, we'll pay for this because it's been shown to be beneficial. Because there's so many ways of making the PRP there are studies that show that it works for these certain conditions and other studies that show that it doesn't work very well for those conditions. But what is difficult is that if the authors haven't put in everything... When you say the authors, what do you mean? The authors of the research papers. Okay, okay. If they haven't included what temperatures they were done at, if they were mixed with anything, you know, did they use lidocaine with the injection? I mean, there's so many variables that it's hard to read those things unless the authors uh, include all those essential and salient points. So for the consumers, the patients out there, they don't know when they go to a doctor what that doctor is doing. Nobody knows. That's true in a lot of ways. I belong to the AAOM, which is a, a membership of regenerative physicians and providers, and to the International Academy of uh, Regenerative Therapy. And those organizations, just the physicians that uh, that I've dealt with in their programs, there's so much integrity, so much compassion amongst these physicians that they've devoted their careers to trying to provide patients alternatives to the way we've practiced medicine for many, many years and to try to improve patient outcomes. And so I, I would say to people who are looking to look and see, does the person belong to the American Academy of Orthopedic Medicine or to the International Association of Regenerative Treatments or Therapy? Because th- those organizations, you know, bet their members and the cutting edge of science, that's what they're presenting. There's also another one. It's not an organization, but it's Toby, and it's orthobiological medicine, and they put on excellent programs as well. Can you talk a little bit about what's the distinction in terms of what you're doing between prolotherapy? There are people that saying, oh, go prolotherapy is really great. Have you tried that? And I said, no, not that I know of. So prolotherapy most commonly is associated with dextrose, but it's really a technique as opposed to a medication. So you can use prolotherapy with dextrose, which is a sugar that creates a slight irritation or wound that the body then responds to by sending in the stem cells and the growth factors and things to heal the area. And that's what most all of us who've been doing this for any time started with. Uh, And then came along PRP. So when you talk about prolotherapy doctors, most of them use the same technique that we all used uh, with the dextrose, except we're using now stem cells or um, 
PRP, or there's quite a few other uh, biologic treatments as well now. Uh, but we're using the same technique because the philosophy is the same, and that is to strengthen and make better the whole structure. What does hydration have to do with the effectiveness the day of or the day before or the day after a treatment like this, and like any of them, STEM, PRP, A2M? Uh, water is helpful because it's a, a lubricant and also because it makes it easier for the phlebotomist to get into the, to the vein. Is there anything right now that you're studying, because I know you do continu- you're committed to continuous learning, that you'd like the public to know that's also very exciting besides A2M? Is there anything else that you're getting into, that you're tracking? Well, th- there's always something. Uh, there's techniques, learning from other providers, because in a lot of ways, there's no textbooks for what we do. So sharing information uh, back and forth about what combination, because, you know, you can use a combination of different types of PRP or platelet lysate. What's that? Platelets have a membrane, and platelet lysate is when we lyse the platelets or the uh, growth factors out. So those things go to work immediately once we do that. And those are particularly good with neurogenic pain. What is that? Pain caused from nerves that are irritated. There are certain types of PRP that they found with the research that are better for one thing than another thing. And so that's why keeping abreast of this fast-moving science is essential to be able to give the patient the best uh, treatment possible. It's just continuous learning. There's continual Updating, new developments. seems like. Mm-hmm. Is it true there's something called platelet-rich fibrin? Are you aware of that? Sure. Talk about that. Some people are using platelet-rich fibrin in the face to do, what do you call these treatments? Yeah, so the fibrin, so it's thermally activated. And what happens is uh, the uh, PRP will thicken. And so they'll use it in surgery. So if they're uh, trying to repair a uh, cartilage deficit, they may use a a platelet-rich fibrin because it stays together. It's not a, a liquid. And uh, so they'll use it cosmetically as well. The dentist will use it. Um, so there's techniques. Typically, I, I don't use much fibrin for the type of work that I do. What about in the face? You do some work with PRP in the face, yeah, don't so, you? Talk sure. about that too, because that's a big craze, and there's very different information out there. Some say you really got to, I'm just telling you some of what the, the researcher did. There's some very prominent people that say, you really got to know the facial muscle, muscle skeletal system to do anything in the face. A lot of people put a lot of hyaluronic acid in the face in the, you know, in the areas where it needs it. And sometimes it leaks and there are like, it's not like a standardized thing. So there's all kinds of things being used on the face. What, what do you do and right now? And where are you at with PRP being done in the face? Uh, when we do PRP to the face, we block it so that, because PRP itself can be painful. So we'll do a nerve block, and uh, that helps to make the, the process more comfortable. I did cosmetic dermatology for many years, so I used similar techniques of uh, threading the needle over the various areas. And, and they're absolutely right. You do have to know the anatomy, where the nerves are and the vessels and that sort of thing. Cause you, you, don't want them to run into any trouble, particularly for that, because people are coming in because they want to look better. And so if you're not well-trained and don't have the experience, you know, I really don't think you should do it, because if you have somebody who's unhappy with their look with the way they are and you make them worse, it's just a no-win situation, and you're just asking for trouble that um, didn't need to happen. But the PRP helps to build collagen, gives greater structural appearance to the skin, and probably helps with dyschromias, which are the variety of colors that we get over time. There was a whole thing that I found out in the last few months about the fat pads dropping. Yes. What is it? Why do we get it? What do we do about it? It's time catches up with us. So gravity is pulling everything down, and we lose the collagenous infrastructure over time as well. So there was a Japanese study done this year that uh, showed people using a platelet gel. And there's a process to go through to turn the platelet into a gel. And they inject it into the tear trough and had excellent results. So 
you may be hearing more about that. Wow, they inject it into the tear trough? That's very delicate. Sure. Would you think that on that kind of a procedure, you would need an eye doctor for that? Sure. Well, an eye doctor would be certainly well qualified to do that. Uh, ENT or dermatologist, of course. One of the important things is staying below the orbital rim, and any of those uh, specialists are going to know that very, very well. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing in the vascular system? Because that's really where the practice started, isn't it? I started doing uh, varicose veins back in 97. And uh, back then we were using detergent-type medications. It was actually from England, fibrovein. And what it is, the sticky substance that causes inflammation. And so you'd inject it into a vein and then compress the vein. And it would create irritation. The vein would scar in. I'm going to faint. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) No, go ahead. I asked. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead, please. So that's how I got started. And over time, as the science evolved, we started doing endovascular laser techniques. Laser, a little catheter, and and we put it in the vein, and the patient is numbed up very well. They don't feel the, the laser at all because the way it closes the vein is by heat. So it heats up and uh, it destroys essentially the wall of the vein. And then through, again, compression, then the vein is closed. That's for bigger veins. And then there's uh, radiofrequency, which is also a thermal ablation, which uses a a similar type catheter. And that's the one that I use uh, most frequently now. Patients tolerate it very well. There's little bruising or swelling afterward and is uh, very successful. Another product that's uh, an adhesive type, and uh, it worked well, but for me, too many people would have a post-procedural inflammation or redness or pain or itchiness. When we have other uh, yeah, methods, methods that don't create yes. those problems, we only use those the, the glue now in, in very rare situations. If patients had it before, perhaps somewhere else, and had a good experience with it. Is it true that with varicose veins, even though people don't like the looks of them on their legs, it's really important, if you can, to get them corrected? There's something structurally about getting it corrected, not just for your eyes or anybody else's eyes. Sure, because the little telangiectasias or spider veins could be that's the depth of the problem, Uh, but usually they're a sign of a deeper problem. And so by seeing a specialist in veins... Uh, they can do an ultrasound to see if those uh, veins lead to deeper problems in the leg. Or can you do that? Sure. Do you do that for your patients that come in on a vascular level? Have you ever had people come in and they want to get rid of their varicose veins, but through doing that process, they find out there's something happening that they didn't expect? Yeah, so if, if I understand the question, so somebody comes in with spider veins. Right. And we or check them out. Or varicose veins of any kind. Okay. And we do the ultrasound, and we find that those are superficial problems and that there's an actual more ominous situation. That's the benefit of doing the ultrasound. Because you can go ahead and do the spider veins or the uh, superficial varicose veins without taking care of the deeper problems. But they're most likely just to come back over time. Do you think that this is an example of a society sitting too much? Sure. So varicose veins, you know, first of all, it's, uh, there's a genetic component, too. It's more common with women, and uh, particularly with women who've had babies because of the weight of carrying that baby. It creates an enormous amount of pressure. We have little valves in the veins that uh, get damaged, and that can be through standing too long, sitting too much, both of those. So activity is, is good. What is the future that you see right now where the world is currently, even though it appears that society in a certain way medically appears to be in a crumbling state and in a highly challenged state all over the world? What do you see as the potential for regenerative medicine to have its way in the world in the face of the tidal wave of everything else that's going on. I'm really optimistic because it's such a wonderful treatment and I've seen so many positive results, life-changing results where people 
couldn't bend down to pick up a granddaughter or whatever. And, and now they can do that, can't go out into the garden, can't kneel, and now they can return to their lives. So I, I think it's going to be positive because I think the patients are going to push for it. They're getting such good results that I don't think you can put the cat back on the bottle. I mean, it's just tremendous. And the cat or the genie? <laughs> the, the, said, the, you have a cat. I have a genie. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. said, I said cap. But oh, cap? Okay, sorry. Cap, I'm thinking cap. of a genie, though. Okay. Because I think of regenerative medicine as, as the yeah, genie. I wouldn't want to try to put a, cap, a cat in a bottle. No. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> but the, the, the results are so positive. You know, I'm enormously optimistic. And so many more doctors are getting involved because they're hearing about the benefits. So with these organizations that I belong to, they're really growing rapidly. So I'm really very optimistic. I've heard that the machines that are being used to make PRP, and there's very different ones that people are using, they're so different, and it's hard to know what PRP is being made and how do they manipulate the PRP so that it proliferates if the machines are doing it? I'm really confused about it, and I've discussed it with other people, and they've said that they're confused about it. There are many uh, companies that make PRP machines, and the question is, is which PRP are they making? Because there are a variety of PRPs, as we've discussed. Uh, the way that um, our lab does it is we have a uh, a machine that we can manipulate the spin rate, the force of the uh, the G's, and uh, also uh, how many times we spin it so that we can produce the type of product that we're looking for. Are there machines that don't let somebody do that? Sure, sure. There how are. can they sell them? I mean, how can people buy them? I would imagine the machines are not inexpensive. No, they're usually not unreasonably priced for the uh, benefits that uh, are, are there for the physician. Uh, they may be using it in an entirely different way than I'm using it. I can't really speak to that. I just know for what I do and from the research that I've read that I'm very comfortable with the techniques that we're using to give the best uh, optimal outcomes for patients. And this has to do with the collection and the method of collection. Well, it's, it's the whole but thing. But also, it's also a process after you've collected. Right. So... Uh, it turns out that the, the method that you collect it is important. What does that mean? Well, a lot of times I think most uh, people will use a, um, a vacutainer, which is a suction type of a device. Anybody that's given blood, usually the phlebotomist will use a, a little plastic uh, vacutainer and then put in the, uh, the tubes, and, it, and the tubes are vacuumed, so it just sucks the, the blood in very fast. And we use a more gentle method of just withdrawing the blood uh, using a syringe uh, because, again, the research has shown we uh, get a better product by doing that. There's different uh, types of anticoagulants because for most PRP, you don't want the blood to coagulate. There are certain situations when you may want it to, but for most circumstances, selecting the right Anticoagulant makes a difference. So we've selected the one uh, that the science supports. Talk a little bit about this new technique. What is it, APS? Yeah, APS is um, it's available in other countries in Europe. I think it's available in Canada now. And uh, it appears to be very exciting. It's um, autologous protein solution. Uh, so there's a, a method of collecting the blood and then putting that uh, with a I believe it's called polyacrylamide beads uh, that uh, has an effect on the uh, PRP in that uh, the end result of that product is an anti-inflammatory. And so it's a very strong anti-inflammatory that appears to be, uh, for people who have an inflammatory type of arthritis, appears to be very beneficial. But we, we haven't gotten approval so far in the United States, as far as I'm aware. Do you think that APS will compete with A2M? Well, they're different. So the first, the APS, is to decrease inflammation, whereas the A2M is to block the enzymatic breakdown of the cartilage. And how long does the A2M last? 
in your view? And do we know enough about it to know how long it lasts? I mean, I mean, given that somebody takes care of themselves, they don't, you know, get in a terrible accident or re-injure yeah, what they came to you for. I, I don't know if we know how long it lasts uh, as far as the, the benefits and the protective nature of it. I know that the recommendation is about two years afterward to redo it. You mean I have to see you in two years? <laughs> this well, is a never-ending relationship, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> They're doing whatever it takes to get me into town. <laughs> well, in this field, two years uh, you know, really is a, a, a huge, it's a lifetime of new therapies, new techniques, and that sort of thing. So our relationship may come to an end one day. I won't allow that. <laughs> I won't allow that. I, I get too much pleasure out of having all my blood taken out by your wife and then you know, all these procedures that I've had. It's just so elegant and perfect. Talk a little bit about the science itself and how much you think there will be FDA approval of a lot of the things that you're seeing coming down the pike. Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of research being produced. Thousands of articles come out every year on these subjects. I think the FDA approving them is... uh, I, again, I think I'm going to go back to the standardization. I think they're going to want to see some standardization. And and there is definitely a call amongst the researchers to standardize their work. Because you do the research and it shows benefit, other researchers will want to do that same research with the same techniques to see if they get the same outcome. How about the same equipment and the same processing, like what you were talking about, the same way of collecting? Sure, it's possible. Um, I don't know how anybody could leave it out. If it's so important, what happens in the back end of this? The making of it yeah. is as critical as the delivery. So one would think the, the medical standardization would want the research of the whole thing, everything that was done. Well, I think the call is out there, so I think you will see that in the future. Very good. Is there anything else you would like to talk about? How wonderful my wife is. She's awesome. I have had a fascination for years of couples who are together in life and work, or what, what, I, what many call dharma, their dharmic path together. And it appears to me that you and your wife, Rosie, have a dharmic path where you are together in your totality and together in your work and your, your, your full life. It is not something that I would say eight out of 10 couples do, can do, or were willing to do, or possibly able to do. It is a rare scenario, don't you think? I, I do. You know, and I've talked to so many people over the years who, you know, question whether it's a good idea for a husband and wife to work together. And, uh, you know, for us, it just works. You know, of course, I have to give a lot of the credit to Rosie, just, uh, I don't know, maneuvering or helping and contributing in, in, I'm sure, many ways that I don't even know to try to make it uh, easier for me. So, gosh, I, I, you know, for the most part, have to give all that credit to just the person that she is. I agree. I agree with you. I think it's really well said, and I think it's true that she's holding the, the ballast of the whole operation, the whole thing. And you're holding the complexity and the accountability of the of being in the field on the front end of the field. You're really in like in the frontier zone. And I'm only a part of it because she's doing the same with the kids, with her parents. I mean, she's just incredible. That's really beautiful thing. And even to be able to acknowledge that is so uh, rare and special. Yeah, thank you. It's rainmaking time. If you would like to reach Dr. Chase at the Center for Regenerative Medicine, you may call area code 626-522-6553. You have been listening to It's Rainmaking Time. I'm Kim Greenhouse, and I really want to thank some special people. Firstly, I want to thank my associate, Dan Bender, for being a major support to the continuation of its rainmaking time, working with me on specials and being available as my technical support and overall production support. We have a relationship that's very virtual, very energetic, 
and very complex. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you also to Allison Kroishka and Gregory Phyllis and Bushauer, the accounting firm in Pasadena, California, who provided the space for this interview with Dr. Chase. We want to thank Rosie Chase for being the support to make sure that everything happened and everything does happen. And I want to thank you, the public, for listening and ask you that if you really like this special, to circulate it to as many people and as many outlets as you can. And for those of you that would like Kim Greenhouse to be interviewing people that are very important to you about subjects that are very timely, and you know people that would like to sponsor those segments, we would really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's Rainmaking Time.